Ostomy Nurse Project. Hi everybody and welcome back to this week's episode of the Ostomy Nurse Project. In a very similar fashion to last week where we focused on chemotherapy with a stoma, this week's episode is looking at something slightly different in the form of having radiation therapy or radiotherapy and living with a stoma. So there's going to be a lot of elements that are crisscrossing and quite similar to the previous episode. But if this is the first one that you've chosen to tune into, you might be a person who is about to undergo a course of radiation treatment prior to having a stoma formed. You might already have had a stoma formed and you may have been given the news that you are about to undergo a course of radiation treatment or radiotherapy. You might be a person who is looking after somebody who's received this diagnosis and is about to undergo this treatment. Or you might be a healthcare professional or somebody caring for someone who is undergoing this treatment or has undergone this treatment and may or may not be suffering from some side effects at the same time as living with a stoma. Now as part of today's episode I wanted to do something a little bit different and I wanted to provide you with an interview um, of somebody who actually works in the field and I thought it might be an interesting way to get a decent perspective of someone who works in that area as opposed to me working solely in stomal therapy. It's always nice to get the perspective of another professional who looks after radiation treatment. Today we are joined by somebody who I get to chat to because he is currently on leave from his job. It is my brother Owen. Say hello. Hello. <laughs> and he is a radiation therapist at a cancer treatment centre here in Victoria. So I'm very lucky that I get to interview him today as part of this episode to do with radiation therapy and living with a stoma. And so we're going to be asking a couple of questions related to radiotherapy or radiation treatment for people living with a stoma. And I hope you guys will find it interesting. Now, I obviously know of the different types of radiotherapy, like internal radiotherapy and stuff for thyroid cancer, which is a liquid version and that. But what do you do in your particular job? What kind of radiation do you do? Uh, well, the bulk of, uh, of my job is using external beam radiation, so using high-powered linear accelerators, yep. uh, which is sort of the most common treatment you'll see. You know, a big machine takes up you know, an entire room, uh, specifically designed, lots of you know, super thick concrete walls, that sort of thing, because it, it probably requires the least amount of ancillary people to operate. So we use it most frequently pretty much all across Australia, actually most commonly across the world. We don't have the danger of a uh, live radiation source that brachytherapy, which is the internal therapy, has. But then there's there's newer newer technologies with in internal radiation using a, an artificial source like the linear accelerator but very low energy for during surgical purposes where they actually put the machine inside a surgical cavity uh, and turn it on for a short moment and that will become a sort of a radiation sterilized area do you do that or that's a separate person that does that like in theater the radiation therapists are there because we're the ones that, that hold the therapeutic radiation license the physicist that would attend calibrates the machine obviously to the environment so theaters can be hot cold you know high pressure low pressure you're quite variable yeah and then of course you've got anesthetists surgeons um, that sort of thing the radiation oncologist which is the doctor that prescribes the radiation mm -hmm. um, but for us we're 
specific ones that have to turn on the machine because we're the only ones that have the license to deliver it for a for a therapeutic purpose does when you do it in in theater like that does that affect like is that a risk to the people around the patient or is it not uh yes it is um there are do they have to do they have to dress funny or stand behind a lead shield or something yeah there are some specific um mobile uh, shielding walls that get put around the machine that sort of thing cool um Basically, it just looks like thick pin boards, but they're they're specially lined shielding walls that have you know various levels of lead and polymers and that sort of thing to help sort of shield the radiation. Uh, so everybody sort of leaves the room to an extent, um, as much as they can. That, that's right. The anaesthetist make sure they keep an eye on their machinery. Some mobile cameras can help. I think one of the mobile walls has a. A, like a lead glass window in it so people can look through, you know, see the machine. It's really sort of rudimentary in, in the way it shields, but because it's low energy, similar energy to a uh, to an X-ray machine that would take pictures of bones, that sort of stuff, but um, sort of ramped up a little bit, it doesn't require a, a massively designated room to, um, you know, protect the people around it. So, yeah, they, they could sort of move it When we're talking about the, obviously the exposure of different people to radiation, how long exactly have you been doing your job? I've been doing mine for 16 years, probably 16 and a half now. And how, Uh, how do you protect yourself from exposure to radiation in your job? Well, we, the way that we use our our equipment, we've got specially designed bunkers and rooms that have a lot of uh, forethought engineering and, and testing that go ahead um, before they allow to have you know public use. That that's basically providing our protection. There's nothing we can do to specifically protect ourselves apart from using the rooms that are designed specifically to shield us. We we operate the machines from locations that are never in the way of a direct beam. We have monitors, as every radiation worker in Australia does, um, just to monitor our exposure. How how does that work? Is that like a necklace that you wear? <laughs> Uh, no, it literally just looks like a um, like a pin badge, but slightly more less glamorous. So, and what's yeah. the, do you know what the measurement is? Because um, during the podcast, I've made a couple of references to how they measure units of radiation, and you know how like there's been the recent um, HBO series with Chernobyl, and they talk about Rontgens, which is obviously after the guy that discovered it, and then they talk about sieverts and millisieverts. What do you know what they measure it in? Yeah, our, our exposure, uh, for some strange reason, reason is measured in millisieverts. Probably because it's the uh, smallest measurement, I think. Yeah, um, so the, the, the tolerance to public and to workers, uh, they vary slightly. Obviously, we're around it all day, so we have it measured at a slightly higher rate, but our exposure level is actually very low. The, the measurement of Ronkin's is a very old measurement, and it basically doesn't get used so much nowadays around the world. I think it's quite a big measurement too. It is. Basically, we use a measurement of grey nowadays, which is basically the measurement of Ronkin's, but I think to uh, 1 100th, if I can remember correctly. We we basically, ever since I've started, we've never referred to Ronkin's as a measurement of um, dose unit. It's pretty old. (laughs) Yeah, it's it's always been grey. And I think that's the 
standard, in the international standard of dose delivered. And in your uh, 16 years of being a radiation therapist, have you ever had any reports that your exposure is too high? No, ne- never for myself, never for anybody else. There have been occasions where people have accidentally left their, their monitoring badge in a treatment room. It's fallen off them. It, it just clips on with a little alligator clip. Yeah. Um, if, if it happened to get caught in a piece of equipment and it's fallen off, and that sort of thing, of course, that gets immediately reported to the medical physicist team. Yeah. And I think they do they do an immediate measurement of their own course and then they have to report that as being a misnomer and then they issue another fresh, they call it TLD. We have a lifelong reported measurement that gets stored somewhere within a government policy file somewhere. Going back to people having radiation treatment, in, particularly in my field, which is stonewall therapy, do you, in your experience, I guess as a broader question, how many people would you see having treated for problems with bowel cancer or pelvic cancers? Is it, is it a large portion or is it equal across all types of cancers? As far as gastrointestinal cancers go, uh, particularly of, of the bowel, it's, they, they come and go away. So it's definitely not our most common cancer that we see and we have to treat, but it's definitely noticeable where we where at my place of work where we treat anywhere between 100 and 120 patients a day, you would definitely be seeing, you know, in a realm of 10% being a sort of a, a bowel cancer treatment. You do a lot of treatments in a day. Uh, the centre in general, yes, definitely does. There's obviously thousands of people that get treated every day. How, how long does the treatment take if you're able to do that many? Not very long. Um, for the majority of our patients at treatment, booking is somewhere in the realm of sort of 10 to 15 minutes that's really quick that's quick but the majority of that is is spent setting the patient up specifically to their their plan you know as with most medicines once it's delivered you can't really do a lot to take it away so radiation is the same we may spend 10 out of that 15 minutes setting a patient up deliver treatment for about two minutes in total and then the remaining three minutes is getting the patient off off the bed and out of the room so the actual time the machine's on is actually only very short. When you talk about all the setup that has to go on, just can you expand on that briefly about what what the setup involves? Well, every every patient that comes through has a a customised plan developed for them in a specific position based on where their location of their their cancer is. So, for instance, uh, in, in the case of a prostate patient, which is one of our more common cancers that we try to treat. We need to stabilise their, their pelvic region, their legs, because we are in the lower pelvis. So you've got to get so the we, exact same place every time. That's that's exactly right. As technology gets better and we can be a lot more accurate with our treatment delivery, we've got to make sure the patient can hold that position for the extended period of time that's required. So as accuracy gets better, our stabilisation needs to reflect that as well. We can't just have somebody lay on a, on a flat surface and expect them to be... And hope um, you get the right spot. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Look, we, we do have various techniques across across the country to help make sure the patient stays in that same position. Is that like uh, those little moulds and those those special frames that you build them? Uh, yes, depending on the, on, on the site. We use a lot of uh, commercially produced stabilisation pieces um, that go underneath knees, underneath feet, underneath shoulders and arms, that sort of thing. And then we do both commercially 
produced and, and non-commercially produced, just internally produced uh, stabilisation pieces, such as those custom moulds using a thermosetting plastic. So in other words, get a, like a plastic mesh, heat it up with some hot water, stretch it over the particular piece of the body uh, and mould it around the patient so that once it's set and we take it off, it maintains their position throughout the entire treatment course. And now I've treated people who have recently undergone a course of radiation therapy and they talk about their little tattoo marks that they get. What are they about? Uh, that's another assisting thing that a lot of centres use. It's, it's been long used to get a uniform piece of anatomy. So where we would palpate particular um, landmarks or identify particular landmarks so the patient between two different staff, we could palpate it slightly differently, which can introduce a level of error. So at the very beginning, when they go through a, uh, the planning stage, if they get tattooed in particular positions, and these tattoos, there, they are only tiny, they're the size of a pinprick, that then stays as their uniform identification marks throughout uh, all their treatment. So there's no mistaking that even if two people palpate the same um, thing differently, the tattoo will always be where the tattoo is, which is been used from the very beginning do you deal directly with patients like other patients with stomas exposed do their do their pouching systems ever get in the way does it ever make it difficult for them to receive treatment it can do we we don't generally remove them at all um well you wouldn't want to (laughs) no definitely not We, we do treat some uh rectal cancer patients in a prone position on a what we call a belly board prone prone so face down Yes, correct, sorry. The idea being is the boards that they lie on, they have a contoured scoop, um, like hole in the middle, that when they lie down, their upper intestines and that sort of stuff go into that hole when they lie face down, removing them away from the rectal area. So we are reducing radiation dose exposure to those other organs. That's awesome. To those other organs. Yeah, look, it's been it's been done that way for quite some time. Technology can sort of supersede that process, but the doctors are very happy that it still serves a strong purpose. So, of course, it does it does prove a problem for those patients that have stomach bags attached, that when they go to lie down, of course, if they haven't freshly changed their stomach bag, be very uncomfortable to lie on. Mm, with we the do. potential for hazards. <laughs> yes, yes, yeah, definitely. They are instructed from from day ones. They they have education with the nursing staff saying when they come in for treatment, it's advisable that if they haven't, as they've left home, change a bag to bring in another bag and change it just before they go through for their treatment. And do they have um, the facilities to do that? Oh, most of them are. Like, is there a, is there a bathroom nearby where they can just duck in and change oh. their pouch or empty it if they had to? Yeah, most definitely. We have patient-only waiting areas with bathrooms just outside the treatment machine areas. Oh, good. So, and then, and then if if they do need assistance, we've got the full nursing team there available to lend them a hand. And of course, some patients uh, do struggle with changing their their, their stomach bags over, or sometimes they've they've gone and changed it, but um, some of the adhesive may not have correctly positioned itself yeah. that sort of thing so you know they, they sometimes need a little bit of assistance and we, we've got processes in place for that to help you know help the patients get through they've they're going through enough already so we've got to be able to give them every every opportunity we can to make it less awkward for them mm. uh, less uncomfortable do the stoma nurses have access to where you work and do they um do, do patients have access to a stoma nurse during these treatments uh, not directly through us. We, 
unfortunately, my location, the majority of locations, we're all outpatient-based. They do, obviously, through having their stoma fitted, they have connections to stomal nurses. Obviously, the extended care uh, still exists through their, I guess, through their surgical unit where it was first done, Mm -hmm. um, which doesn't necessarily uh, lie with our uh, duty of care. But in saying that, the the oncology nurses do have their, their training in being able to deal with them. So we don't necessarily have a specific stomal nurse on site available through a rotating process. We obviously have the nurses to help people and then refer them back to their uh, original stomal care group. How has technology progressed in radiation treatment now compared to you know the previous history? Because from what I've seen, things are a lot more accurate at targeting the cancer cells these days from what they used to be? Yeah, well, the technology has advanced even in even in, in my short time working in the industry through numerous different steps and processes, uh, starting from the diagnostic quality that we get. The quality of those, just even the quality of mammograms for the breast ladies uh, has gone up so dramatically in, in the last couple of decades that with each incremental increase, you know, in technology, the, the pinpoint accuracy has really um, improved uh, more accurately with, with their diagnosis. As the technology has increased on our end, we have had better quality machines coming through, going from taking old-scale X-ray film pictures, so going to a dark room, getting them processed. Um, we can't do it every day. You know, the quality is as it comes out to going through to a digital process. So we had a digital plate that would be in replacing of a film. That could give us picture qualities that we could adjust as we go to develop it. And then going through to now where we have a lot of uh, integrated digital X-ray imaging on our machines to a simulated uh, CT image using the machine. Some machines also have live pictures available to help verify patient position as all these technologies have been implemented, the doctors have been able to produce better uh, better plans, more accurate, and then in some cases they've been able to increase the dose in smaller areas so that the tumour has received more therapeutic dose than what was previously deliverable with, with a higher um, level of accuracy and, and confidence level that they are doing a positive thing. I mean, there's, there's been so many changes just, just in the last 15, 16 years that have allowed benefits to go through, even on our um, planning uh, side of things, making the, the plans for the patients. We've got better better technology, uh, better software, better computer systems, changes in, in calculation algorithms, because a lot of it's all hidden computer work. As that gets better, we can produce better quality plans. The doctors can push the boundaries of what they've done previously, um, all, all aiming for better outcomes for the patients. Well, thank you very much, Owen, for that interview. It's been very interesting and I hope my questions haven't sounded so silly. No, def- definitely not. It's uh, There's a lot to go on with radiation and that's why we study for it. But uh, to try and sum it up for people can often be quite difficult. So hopefully I've done that okay. Definitely. And if you were to give any advice to anybody who is out there living with a stoma who is about to undergo a course of radiation treatment. Um, Do you have any advice or suggestions for them at all? Definitely talk to your doctors and your nurses and you living with a a stoma just to make sure that, that you're doing everything you can to look after that. All right. Thank you very much. Not a problem. 
So there you go, there was a brief interview with my brother who was able to have a chat with us in this episode because, as I said, he's currently on leave thanks to my brand new nephew that was born recently, so congratulations to he and his wife. Um, But it's a really great idea to get this perspective from somebody who works in the field because it's one thing to obviously work with people who live with stomas, but then having to go on and have further treatments, particularly if you have to get into awkward positions and things like that, you may not be so familiar with going in and having radiation treatment so this was a way of dispelling some of those myths and reassuring people that there are accommodations for people who live with stomas that do have to undergo radiation. Now the interesting thing about receiving radiation treatment as opposed to chemotherapy or chemoradiation which is a combination of both radiation therapy in itself carries with it a slightly different set of side effects and symptoms that you may experience whilst living with a stoma and undergoing this treatment. There are some overlaps between chemo and radiation type symptoms, but this episode today is focusing solely on radiation and how radiation works and what happens during these treatments to cause some of the side effects that people may or may not experience either before, during or after their treatment that can affect their life with a stoma. So that might include um, the way that they pouch uh, an appliance, their skin condition afterwards, and even looking forward into the future, if people have a temporary stoma, what are the possible long-term side effects of maintaining or regaining bowel continence after your reversal? So we're going to cover all of that today in this episode. Now, because I am very much a bit of a history buff, as you guys might know from listening to the Stoma's Horrible History episode, I want to give you a little bit of background on radiation treatment and how it came about that we have this option to treat cancers in this way now, because there's actually quite a negative view of radiation and how it damages cells in the body. But it's a really amazing discovery that came about late in the 18th century. Now, there was a German physicist called Wilhelm Röntgen, and in 1895, as I said, he discovered the X-ray. And it was called an X-ray because the X stood for unknown. It was a new type of ray that they had discovered during an experiment that Wilhelm Röntgen was doing. And basically what happened is he was conducting an experiment when he noticed that photographic plates near his equipment started glowing when he was passing these light rays through through different gases and chemicals. And he discovered that this glowing was caused by these mystery rays that were emitted by this tube that he held um, during his investigations. And the tube contained basically a small science lesson, a pair of electrodes. And as electricity passed through those, X-rays or these unknown rays were emitted and appeared onto the photographic plates. And now in history, if you look it up, there's plenty of um, historical images of the picture of Röntgen's wife's hand, which was one of the very first X-rays that was ver- that was ever taken. So Röntgen published this work a couple of months after this, and it was revolutionary because these pictures of the bones in his wife's hand were the very first pictures that we could see inside people, basically. And this basically made Wilhelm Röntgen a famous celebrity in terms of the physics world. 
And it's important to mention his name because going back to the Chernobyl miniseries, you might have, um, for those of you who watched it, you might have seen the scene where they went in, drove a truck towards the nuclear reactor to measure the amount of radiation that was being dispelled from this fire. Um, And they often referred to it as X amount of Röntgens. And it was all named after Wilhelm Röntgen and his discovery of the X-ray. So in the Chernobyl series where they're talking about um, they're measuring, you know, 15,000 Röntgens, the measurement that we tend to use now is actually a fraction of that. We call them sieverts. Um, but I wanted to make that distinction that um, calling something or measuring radiation in Röntgens was a, a former measurement of being able to assume how much ionizing radiation is emitted from something. So when I talk about ionizing radiation, I want to point out something. There is radiation, lots of different types of radiation throughout Earth. And radiation on its own isn't necessarily harmful. So we have gamma rays, the gamma radiation, which is emitted from stars. That's what gives them their light. That's why we can see stars shining in the night sky. We have solar radiation, which is uh, from the sun, where we feel heat on an asphalt pavement on a hot day, where we feel warmth from the sun, and we sometimes get sunburnt. That is solar radiation. Um, and then we've got lots of different things like radio waves that we listen to, Wi-Fi, um, those sorts of things are all forms of radiation and radio waves. So radiation in itself is not harmful. What is harmful is when we start to get into the type of radiation that becomes supercharged, for lack of a better term. And it is this supercharged or super strong emitted radiation from things like uh, UV, X-ray and gamma ray, which is high energy radiation that can become harmful to us. And going back in history again to Wilhelm Röntgen's wife and that historical x-ray picture of her hand, complete with wedding band and everything, throughout the studies of radiation, there were many people like the Curies and obviously the Röntgens who didn't understand its true power at the time. And so they went on historically to develop horrendous radiation burns and later on died as a result of long-term radiation exposure. But it was... The cutaneous burns that were caused by this radiation that sparked interest in its ability to destroy cells like cancerous tumors, which is where we start to get into the modern day radiation treatment or using this harmful radiation to actually target faulty cancer cells in the body to destroy those cells specifically as a means of reducing those cancer cells. So how does radiation therapy work? In this day and age, radiation therapy works by making small cracks or breaks in the DNA strand inside cells, which keeps cancer cells from growing and thus causing them to die. So when we break a cycle in a DNA chain, the coding of that cell that is normally telling that cancer cell to proliferate and grow and multiply, the messages no longer get through. We are scrambling that DNA and messing with the programming of that cell to allow it to not complete the message. And if it can't complete the message to grow and proliferate, it programs itself or it is faulty and it dies and thus how radiation can help reduce and shrink tumors and prevent them from proliferating and growing bigger. Now here's some more interesting facts about radiation. If too many cells 
are exposed to radiation, it changes the chemicals and the DNA of those cells permanently. And it splits the DNA chain. So as we know, a DNA chain is a tightly bound um, double helix with all that information in it. It splits that in half and it causes sickness, radiation poisoning, and it can actually cause cancer. So this is, again, where we get back to stories of people being exposed to radiation, particularly like the Chernobyl disaster, but in all areas where there's been radiation exposure. If too many cells are exposed to high levels of this high-energy radiation in the form of UV, X-ray, gamma ray, the cells can no longer repair themselves and they inevitably die. Now, in terms of using X-ray beams or radiation beams to treat cancer, radiation can pass through flesh, any sort of flesh, as we know from the X-ray from Rutgen way back in 1895. So we know that radiation can pass through flesh because flesh is 70% water. So these rays are strong enough to penetrate through flesh. Radiation gets partially blocked by things like bones, as we know because they show up on an x-ray, partially blocked, and is fully blocked by things like lead. So lead is too dense for radiation to pass through. And that's why when you go and have an x-ray, you know, they put those lead vests on you or they put those lead blankets. Um, that's to protect the other tissues from being exposed to radiation or x-rays. Now, one problem with x-ray beams is that they continue to pass through the body even after hitting the cancerous tumor cells that they've been targeted at. Again, tumorous cancer cells are 70% water, just like our flesh. Now, if we are passing those high-energy radiation beams through tissue to reach a cancerous tumor, those rays will continue to be directed through that tumor and through other organs surrounding that cancerous tissue. So what that means is for people who have undergone um, radiation treatment for things like colorectal cancer, bowel cancer, anal cancer, or even certain types of pelvic cancers, the radiation will continue to penetrate not only the cancerous tumor, but the living cells around it. And this is where we start to see these damaging effects from X-ray or radiation beams being used to target cancer cells. And it's a little bit similar to chemotherapy in the sense that although chemotherapy is more of a non-selective drug that changes the chemical activity of tumorous cells, chemotherapy in itself doesn't discriminate and it can affect all rapidly dividing cells, as I mentioned in the previous episode. Radiation, although it is highly selective at being able to be pinpointed at the direct line of a cancerous tumor, it still needs to pass through other areas of flesh and out the other side to get to that cancerous tumor cell. So that means that we inadvertently apply radiation to all other tissue cells around that tumor. And that's when side effects and symptoms of radiation damage can occur to those areas. And I'm going to explain how that manifests and what that looks like and feels like later on in the episode. Now, since radiation has to travel through healthy cells, these healthy cells, as I said, may get damaged. Healthy cells in the human body normally repair themselves. A human body has a very good capacity to heal its own tissues. In cancer cells, that repair function is often faulty in the DNA and hence the cells growing 
into a cancerous tumour anyway. There is a fault in the DNA that tells a cell that it needs to rapidly divide and become malignant and proliferate. There is already something faulty in that cancer cell that makes it different from a normally growing cell. So whilst our normal human cells can often repair themselves after radiation treatment, the faulty cancer cells often cannot. And so the cancer cells can't repair themselves and so they reduce and they die. And this is part of the sole purpose of having radiation therapy to treat cancerous tumours. Now, that's also why that they often give you a break in between radiation treatments. So you might have one session, wait a week or two or three, however long, and then go and have another one. It gives the body time to repair the healthy cells in between treatments before going back and inflicting radiation on those same cells again to get to that cancerous tumor in the hope that the good cells will continue to repair themselves as the human body does, but that the cancer cells will not be able to reprogram and will die off. Now, what does that mean for people living with a stoma and dealing with any effects or symptoms as a result of radiation therapy? Now, at the start of the episode, I talked about the fact um, that radiation can cause signs and symptoms Uh, due to the treatment, and that can involve what we call things like radiation recall, which is a rash, almost like a sunburn-type rash, and that can occur in the areas receiving the radiation, so the direction or the areas of flesh or tissue that are exposed to that radiation can develop a sunburn-like rash. And we do often treat these types of burns. You know, we often get patients in the hospital who suffer from radiation burns from mild to severe, depending on how many times they've had that same area zapped. So with each incremental administration of radiation, they have to be directed and targeted through the same site each time to make sure that they're getting as much of the tumor as possible. So if we're going to be hitting the skin and the flesh with the same beams of radiation with every single treatment, over time that skin cell will get damaged and you will find that sometimes people get a sunburn-like wound or a rash or damaged tissue where the radiation has been. That's just the external side of things, and we treat that much like a wound. But if you're a person who lives with a stoma and you are having radiation treatment near that area, you may find that depending on the direction of the radiation or where it has been inflicted on you, you might develop some skin damage in or around or close to your stoma, which can have detrimental effects when it comes to your pouching systems. And much like the chemotherapy episode where I talked about your predisposition for bruising and bleeding, if you are developing radiation burns and they do turn into full-blown wounds on your skin or cutaneous wounds, they do require treatment. And that can mean that with wet exudating wounds that can be quite painful, your pouches may not stick. And so this is where your stomal therapy nurse can get involved and recommend wound care treatments underneath your stoma appliance or products and accessories that may help you to uh, heal that wounded tissue as a result of radiation so that you can get your pouches to stick effectively. And these are things like your pastes, your powders, your seals, even certain types of wound dressings that may be compatible to be put on wounded skin underneath your ostomy pouching systems and that can be left in place to heal that tissue so that you can get a good stick and secure fitting pouch so that you don't have leaks and further skin irritation. Now, looking a little bit deeper into the skin and into the flesh, as I mentioned, that radiation passes through one side through the cancerous tumour through those cells 
and straight back out the other side. So internally, with enough repeated radiation exposure and with each subsequent healing episode, we're creating wounded tissue with each treatment. And as we know in part of Wound Care 101, when wounds heal and close over, they create scar tissue. And scarring is the close-knit collagen fibers and the, the very fine microfibers that knit together to hold that wounded tissue back together again. So with each repeat administration of radiation to the same tissues over time, those tissues can actually develop scarring from radiation. And these can have permanent effects on your insides, particularly in your abdomen. So these are things like adhesions where the scarring sticks together or sticks to one another and causes um, blocking inside the abdomen, particularly in the intestinal tract. You can also get nerve damage from repeat scarring on the nerve tissue itself. So those nerve pulses and the information and electrical activity trying to pass through the nervous tissue may not effectively get to the other side and transmit those messages. And the resulting nerve damage can play a part, particularly in your bowel function. So some people can develop diarrhea, high output, loose output, constipation, as a result of the nerve damage and the scarring on those tissues that can prevent your bowels uh, from functioning efficiently. Now, as I've mentioned in the previous episode about chemotherapy, if you are having issues with the bowel function in terms of um, sensitivity, it may cause you to have loose output um, from your stoma. So if that's the case, talk to your stoma therapy nurse because we can advise a high output option for the type of pouch that you use. Or if you are a person who uses a perhaps a closed bag, if you happen to have a colostomy, we might be able to suggest a temporary drainable version if you do happen to suffer from loose bowels or problems with your bowel functions. So it's always important to get in touch with your stomal therapy nurse if you have concerns about that. Now the only other thing that I wanted to touch on today is a little bit different because it actually starts to talk about what happens after you have your stoma reversed. So for those of you who are fortunate enough to be given the option of having stoma reversal, which is where the stoma gets put back together and we reconnect and restore continuity of bowel function. So the area that you had treated down low in the pelvis is all put back together and we can assume passing bowel motions in the normal fashion by sitting on a toilet. Now, throughout the course of radiation therapy, as I've just spoken to you about, the relevant scarring from repeated uh, radiation treatments can cause irreversible scarring and damage to the rectal tissue or perhaps in the lower colon or in the pelvis itself. And if that damage is too severe, the nerves will no longer be able to restore proper bowel function as it once used to. And the fibrosis in the bowel from the repeat scarification of treatment can actually reduce the colon and the rectum's ability to stretch and perform that storage activity that it would normally do. So when fecal matter sits down into the rectum, we hold it there and store it until such time as the nerves are stimulated to send that message to us that we need to sit down and have a bowel motion. If you've undergone a course of radiation treatment and you've had particularly severe scarring effects from that, sometimes after reversal, the damage is too great to those tissues. And you may find that 
continuity of bowel function will never be the same again. And this is where some people can suffer things like bowel incontinence, fecal incontinence, fecal urgency, which is where you have to get to a toilet very quickly, otherwise you feel like you're not going to make it, or perhaps even fecal frequency, which is where you feel like you have to go to the toilet many, many times in one sitting. You may have the sensation that you're getting incomplete emptying after you've had a bowel motion. Or you may find that you end up having symptoms of constipation where you are not able to evacuate the bowel completely and satisfactorily, which means you're not passing those stools effectively as you would prior to having that radiation treatment. And so this starts to breach into the continence realm, but I just wanted to pinpoint the fact that sometimes after radiation treatment, people who were considering having their stomas reversed prior to that may run the risk of developing these after uh, treatment symptoms, so after reversal symptoms. Not everybody experiences these symptoms, but I definitely think it's something to consider when you are contemplating reversal. And this is a conversation that you would have perhaps with your oncologist or your colorectal surgeon when it comes time to discuss the options for reversal. There are many, many people who choose to keep their temporary stomas and those stomas inevitably become permanent stomas. Depending on the severity and the degree of scarring down in the bowel and the chances of being able to regain bowel continence again, that is sometimes a determinant in whether somebody decides to keep their stoma or to have it reversed still. And some people live quite happily if, if they decide not to be reversed, they choose to keep their ostomy appliances and continue that way because it becomes familiar and that's what they know and that's what they're comfortable with. The connotation is, well, if I've lived with this bag for so long, I'll just continue to do that. However, there's just as many people that do want to be reversed. They want to have the opportunity to restore their bowel function and maintain a sense of continuity. I just think it's important to point out that sometimes that's not always the case. And later on down the track, after your stoma reversal, you may go on to develop some of these symptoms of radiation damaged tissue, which can cause some changes or sometimes even permanent effects to the nerves and the scarification in that delicate bowel tissue. Now, if that's something that does concern you, please, again, get in touch with your stomal therapy nurse or get in touch with your colorectal surgeon to discuss those options. It's always worth having that conversation with a specialist to see what the options are before, during or even after radiation treatment. If you are a person who has a stoma, to contemplate whether reversal is the right option for you and whether it will be possible in the future to restore your bowel continuity if you have a temporary stoma. All right, everybody. Well, that's pretty much it for this week's episode on radiation therapy and living with a stoma. I hope you've enjoyed it. Again, if you guys like the content that you're listening to, please feel free to rate us or leave a comment. We are on Apple Podcasts, YouTube, Spotify, and Podbean if you want to find us in any of those places. Tune in next week, guys, for another episode of the Ostomy Nurse Project coming to you from down under, just like where your stoma is. <laughs>